paging all associates, please come to the conference room for a little conversation. Hello and welcome to this little conversation, which is not going to be little. However, I am one of your hosts, Preston Eberlin, along with... Your favorite host, Carson. Yeah, and we are just introing um, the long-form interview, or I guess the full interview, some would say, of uh, my interview with Dr. Robert Postek. Um, yeah, it's a pretty long interview, so obviously it's not a little conversation. However, uh, we felt it was uh, appropriate for you all to hear it the day after inauguration. Um, Carson, any thoughts on that interview before we roll it? Yeah, I'll just say, Preston, I'm so proud of you for recovering the file. <laughs> Who knew? Good work. <laughs> so, okay, long story short, but it was basically, we use an app that, like, records phone calls or whatever, um, and the app only gave us part of the file, so I was like, well, let me just email their customer service, and the customer service was like, oh, yeah, we have the whole file, you just have to call us, and we'll give it to you, and I was like, what <laughs> so <laughs> i was like i will be a karen from now on and this is how i shall uh move on with my life so yay <laughs> but i'm no it, i'm genuinely glad that you recovered it because i think there's a lot of good material there mm -hmm. and i'm so excited for our listeners to have the opportunity to hear what he has to say and i honestly have quoted him already like i think what he says is quite profound so yep. buckle up listeners and enjoy here it is dr robert postick is a professor of political science and chair of the department of behavioral sciences at the university of finley his main research interests include religion and politics as well as a scholarship of teaching and learning he received his M.A. in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary in 1990 and his Ph.D. from Wayne State University in 2007. Dr. Postick has an extensive teaching background, having taught for 25 years at the secondary and post-secondary levels. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce my old college advisor. Not old in the sense of he is old, but an old in the sense that... Um, I am, old, I am old, and it was a, a while ago that he was my advisor, uh, Dr. Robert Postick. Dr. Postick, Robert, thank you, for, thank you for joining and associates on this podcast. Oh, truly, it's my pleasure to um, join you, and, and thanks for reaching out to me. This is really sort of a fun thing for me to do, even though maybe the topics aren't really fun things. They're, they're difficult topics, uh, and, you know, something that we sort of do need to talk about, but it, it really is a joy for me to be able to join you. Great. Well, thank you. So we'll, uh, we'll just get into our first question here and um, feel free to answer as the expert you are. So our first question here is, what are your initial thoughts about what happened this past week in our nation's capital with regard to the, the protests turned to riots um, in, in the capital? Yeah, um, I guess one way of getting at that is when it was sort of happening, I had to make a, a phone call on something sort of totally unrelated to a colleague. And I was supposed to call that person at, at 4 o'clock. And I'm online watching all this stuff, and it's after 4 o'clock. And I suddenly realized, oh, my goodness, I've got to make this phone call. So I called the person, and I, I immediately said, look, I'm sorry I called later than what I said, but I'm, I'm – got busy watching democracy dismantle in front of our very eyes <laughs> and she's like i know right um and I, later my my daughter uh called me and said so is that really that bad and i'm like well no and and yes on, on the one hand it it's very very distressing to see the images mm -hmm. that we saw on our well most of us on our computer screens if, if not our tvs and extremely distressing to see sort of a democratic process basically derailed almost at least for a time period by a riot uh, by a mob. Mm -hmm. there's no way any way around that um and so that was extremely distressing and it does sort of call into question where are we as a democracy is this and so now you're starting to see those sort of narratives um on the one hand, the immediate sort of narrative was, this is not who we are as a country. And right. then other people are coming out saying, no, this is exactly who we are as a country. Mm -hmm. But then I, my, my daughter said, 
because I sort of was a little bit lighthearted about it. She says, well, the fact that you're joking tells me it isn't that bad. I said, well, it is, but it's not. Because uh, as I told I talked to her at that time, it's probably about 6 o'clock. I said, here's what's going to happen. Here's what I'm projecting is going to happen. I said, the Capitol building will be quickly be brought under control. Um, Congress is going to be back in session this evening. I'm, and at that point, they hadn't said the Congress going to be back in session. But I said, this is what's going to happen. I would, I would guess by 8 o'clock tonight, Congress is going to be back in session. We'll get sort of back on, on track, which is mm-hmm. exactly what happened. Not that I was especially present or sort of right. being able to have a crystal ball. This is sort of any thoughtful person would have been able to foresee this. So it is very distressing what happened. But on the other hand, let's not lose sight of the fact that the situation was quickly brought under control. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress did get back to the job of being Congress. And then you did have the certification and, or more to the point, the, the counting of the, the votes of the Electoral College. And Joe Biden was announced to be the, the president, which most of us already knew, right? Uh, so right. I think there's 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 a glimmer of hope there that our institutions are still solid and are working. Mm-hmm. So I think there we do need to keep that in mind. Um, nevertheless, uh, the images were extremely distressing. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. And <laughs> it does sound a, a little prophetic uh, that you that you knew they were going to come back, but I, I think. Uh, you know, and any any reasonable person looking at it knew that um, in terms of our institutions, that was something that our politicians would want to show is a show of strength. And uh, I think we also saw that with um, the politicians. Well, some of them who had originally um, objected to uh, the certification or were or were planning on objecting, then withdrawing uh, their objections. Right. So, right. Uh, Right. And which, so, which, so okay. Go ahead. No, oh, oh, you no, go you go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Oh, I okay. was just going to so say, I, 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 <laughs> no, you go ahead. Now. <laughs> one of the things I was going to emphasize here, because this does sort of lead us into the question, and maybe this is where you're going to go, is what does this mean for democracy? And exactly. one of the things I did want to emphasize is the strength of our institutions. Because mm-hmm. looking back, in one sense, you could say, and again, you see these narratives, well, who could have seen this coming? Well, we all should have seen it coming, mm-hmm. is, is sort of the, the narrative now. Um, but one of the things I want to sort of emphasize is the strength of our institutions. I think the last two months have indicated that our institutions are strong, and which is one of the reasons why I put great faith in our institutions. I, I don't always put great faith in individuals. Uh, in the yeah. sense that I'm going to always hope for them to do the better thing or the best thing. In fact, I often am surprised when they do the best thing. I, in one <laughs> sense, I'm somewhat pessimistic of individuals in power. Um, mm-hmm. Even though I think a lot, I think overwhelmingly our elected officials, state, local, and national officials sort of get into politics because they have a vision of what America should look like. They have a vision of what policies we should have. And I think those are honorable things. But when they get into power, then something sort of changes. So I, I don't always expect the best from them, but I do mm-hmm. continue to put faith in our institutions to put the brakes on yeah. sort of power or to be these sort of self-corrective mechanisms. And I think the mm-hmm. last two months demonstrated that with, with the courts at least. And so that's yeah. why I'm always hopeful that even though things may sort of start to get off the rails, we have structures and institutions in place that will sort of bring a sort of a halt to those in some ways, sometimes more quickly, sometimes less quickly. That was that, actually that was brought into control extremely very quickly. Again, maybe the initial reaction by the police and law enforcement wasn't what people thought it should have been. And I think there's, an, there's a fair amount of criticism that's legitimate there. But again, mm-hmm. I think the uh, strength of our institutions is something that continues to give me hope. Good. Yeah, and 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 that's one thing I would say. If if it gives you hope, that 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 then it it comforts me at least because um, there was definitely a point where, uh, especially I I think there there were some reports and um, there were some reports out that you know the National Guard had had not yet been deployed even once the individuals the rioters had reached the. 
the the inner mm-hmm. right. the, the the Senate chamber and everything and and that was that was concerning um, obviously mm-hmm. just because I think that uh, I think the, the the slowness by which of the reaction but also um, I think the, the the chain of command for the National Guard uh, spoke to that because it gets to that individual level but that being said we we're now seeing uh, a lot of reports about how um, even with that that chain of command, um, then those 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 institutions, those those bodies that were are meant to you know protect American democracy, then then came out and um, and well defended it. So. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep. Okay. Um, well, yeah. So the next question we have here is: um, Are we governing our people properly? And um, just to follow up on that, is there a better way where people feel represented and heard no matter where they fall in race, religion, socioeconomic class? Yeah, that's, that's really a, a difficult question in terms of are we governing our government properly and is there a better way? I think if you talk to most political scientists, they'll say, well, yeah, sure, there is a better way. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that we have a sort of a two-party system is, is problematic especially mm-hmm. due to the fact of the you know continued polarization in the United States that really goes back to really starting around 1990 is where you really sort of start the polarization and yeah. the the two political parties have shown sort of in, either an inability or an unwillingness to govern responsibly uh, mm-hmm. we've gotten into a cycle of uh, retaliation which again goes back to the 80s um, and probably back to the Bork nomination, where the Republicans mm-hmm. felt that, well, that it was unjustified. And so then we got into this cycle of retaliation and a cycle in which there's a emphasis more on winning elections than they are, there is governing after the, the election. So it, the, the short answer is there absolutely is, absolutely is a better way of governing if we had uh, parliamentary system rather than presidential system. We, we mm-hmm. had um, representation by, you know, proportional representation rather than single member districts that we have. Uh, this would allow probably for more third parties and and then we would maybe have more responsible government, which is great. We, we could redo our voting system. The way we vote is maybe not the best way. There's other ways of, of voting. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that is not to diminish the truthfulness of all that. That's all great stuff, but it's just that's never going to happen. <laughs> I think right. that's the reality <laughs> we have to live in is that these institutional changes that people argue for that would get us to the point where we're governing better would take a sort of a redoing of the whole constitution, maybe not the whole constitution, mm-hmm. metaphorically, of course, and that sort of bar to get constitutional amendments passed is just way, way too high. And the, not the least of the problems is that these changes would have to come out of Congress. Well, no way is Congress going to sort of say, hey, let's vote, give us less power. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so uh, when we think about governing um, and is there a better way, the, the two parties have there has to be a realization within the two parties that they need to sort of move away from this retaliation cycle that we're in on the one hand and stop focusing on winning elections rather and and then governing after election. Whether we'll see that actually happen is is another question. The other problem when we sort of circle back to this idea, are we governing our people properly? Again, the easy answer is no, we're not. We have large mm-hmm. groups of individuals that are maybe not disenfranchised in the technical sense, right? Because they can still go out and vote, but they feel disenfranchised. So there's a fair amount of alienation in the United States today across the number of socioeconomics, not just more socioeconomic uh, strata, which have always felt alienated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sense that it doesn't matter who is empowered, those people don't care about me. I can recall back when I was teaching a, as an adjunct back at Wayne State, I was talking about, about voting. And and um, I asked students, you know, are you going to vote? And one student said, no, I'm not, not going to vote. And I'm like, why? He said, well, it doesn't matter. Literally, it doesn't matter. This was prior to the, I think, 2004 election, I believe. 
-hmm. because in her words, they've already decided who the, the uh, president's going to be. Whoever they are, in her mind, they had decided who, and the election was, even though the election hadn't taken place, in her mind, the election was already done. Right. right. And this was a, a student that I knew happened to come from a very uh, low socioeconomic uh, background. And so that's always been, well, that sort of thing has creeped up into to the middle class as well, mm -hmm. especially working working middle class. So we see this in a number of different areas. And so how do we get those individuals back into the system in which we they feel empowered when they feel that the leaders are listening to those? I'm not sure how how to do that because again this this goes also go back to that to the Occupy Wall Street movement, you may recall. The sort of ninety nine percent versus the one percent. So we have these large sections of individuals across a number of socioeconomic strata that feel that they are not being listened to, that elites are in charge, uh, that there's some sort of oligarchy in control in the United States, and that's where all the power is, and there's no power for, for us. The only way out of it to break this is for both parties to embrace the rhetoric that they actually sort of say. Anytime there's a transition of power or anytime there's a change of power, there's sort of this rhetoric of, okay, we need to work together. We need to put the past behind us. You want to bet a whole bunch of money in Joe Biden's inauguration speech. You're going to see those sort of same themes. You saw the themes in his, um, when he announced, you know, victory back in, well, what was it, two years ago? I think in November. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago it seems like it is. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we see those themes come up. Uh, we saw when um, in the midterm losses, I believe in 2006 with Bush, we need to reach across the aisle and all this. The parties need to embrace that rhetoric. They need to embrace it where they're going to sit down and say, we're going to, we're going to be adults in the room. Um, whether or not they're going to do that, just say it and not embrace it, I don't know. I would hope that they would. But that's the only way we're going to get to back to where we're governing our people properly. And by governing, it means are we going to have policies that are rational, that are considered, and that are accepted uh, by individuals, where people are willing to, to compromise and not get sort of the whole loaf of bread that they're going to be happy with sort of half a loaf of bread, right. again, to extend the metaphor. Um, I don't know how we get there, but it's going to fall upon the party and the party leadership uh, for mm -hmm. that, that to happen. Yeah. Yeah, the best, I think the best uh, metaphor, the best saying I ever heard for compromise, I think it, it might have been from you or or, or, or mm -hmm. from someone else, but it was basically compromise is uh, is, is when no one's happy. <laughs> no one's happy with the outcome right. uh, on either side right. because, you know, you had right. to give up so much. And, and that that's the, the, the best compromise because if someone's happy, then someone got more than what someone else wants. But um, I think... You, you you brought up a, a, a lot of good points, I mean, a lot of points and a lot of good points um, in terms of governing people properly. And you talked about um, a lot of that, that creep up into the middle class of, of feeling like the elites have, have, um, have you know, uh, basically already decide who's going to win and all that. Um, do you think that there has been a turn, um, I think... Or, or, or been a turn in in you know the 2016 election and then especially uh this past 2020 election and then I, i'll i'll bring it into the the special election here in georgia and the reason i bring those up uh, is just because the turnout was so high and i think uh in terms of of turnout um you know that there's been a lot of talk about how obviously the the presidential election was the biggest um turnout and, and and the georgia special election the the turnout is basically what won it for the democrats because the the in the republican areas i think it was around 90 or 88 percent of what it was in in, in the presidential election but um I'm, I'm not sure what my question is there other than uh do you think that the recent elections might might see a turn in in people's thinking or, or do you think this is more of just an anomaly of you know we just want to get rid of donald trump and all, all these things or or do you think there might be a turn with with some people um in the in the middle class of, of getting more engaged because they see where things have gone these past couple of years yeah i i i at this moment it's always sort of difficult sort of say hey this is what's going on we 
we, right. we don't even read our own history well. So we don't even understand history. So we that's what's going to happen. Where are we at a turning point, right? It's really yeah. sort of dangerous territory. But I've always been one to wade into dangerous territories, for better or for worse. I, don't, I, I think I'm more in the camp it's an anomaly. It's, it's really an okay. anomaly. It's, and it's a Donald Trump anomaly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I, I don't think, I think it's pot, I think it is possible to exaggerate the importance of Donald Trump to political and social culture. I think that is possible to exaggerate okay. his importance. Nevertheless, that does not negate the fact that his personality and his person in sort of the 2016 election and now 2020 election is en- enormous in the effect that he's had. So we're in a cycle, and I, I'm hoping that's a free cycle of sort of the cult of personality, mm-hmm. where Again, he fed into this idea that they don't listen to you. I'm going to drain the swamp, all those sort of cliches that came out and captured this imagination of this disaffected blue class white male worker out there to, to embrace mm-hmm. the stereotype. But there's, there's a certain amount of truth there as well. Right. And so then you had the backlash to. Right. Trump by the voter mobilization, especially in Georgia and Stacey Abrams, and I'm sure you know everything that goes along with that, right? Right. And so we didn't have sort of this large turnout, but this large turnout was prompted by the personality of Trump, where people mm-hmm. want to get out and vote because I don't want him to be president anymore. Right. So going forward, I think we're going to enter into a sort of hopefully a, a more quiet sort of time period. But here's the other problem uh, mm-hmm. with sort of this higher voter turnout. Now you have a group of people that feel that, for rightly or wrongly, I think it's wrong, um, who believe that the election was stolen from them. Mm-hmm. Will they now continue in 20, what, 2022 and then 2024? Will they go on and vote because they feel that? the vote, the election was stolen, stolen from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and will the individuals that were motivated go out and vote against Trump continue to be motivated to go out and vote for their congressperson and senator in 2022 and then in, in 2024? I think they won't be. I think there's going to be mm-hmm. sort of a, a pulling back from that. But it's not going to be huge. Point right. Back. It's not like we're going to go back down to what was I think uh, 96, where you had uh, just under 50 percent of the voting age population voting because it was just a who cares election. <laughs> you, you had dull <laughs> on one side and, and Clinton on the other side. Uh, you had two versions of the same individual. Uh, so we won't go back to that, but there'll be a sort of a, a, a retrenchment or retranching of, of voter turnout in 2022, which, of course, there always is. I'm comparing you know, with midterm elections, but would compare 2022 to 2018. I, I would expect 2022 to be lower than 2018 and 2024 to be lower than, um, than this year as, as well. Um, so I, I think it's an anomaly uh, of what's going on. And this does bring up a, a broader question about voting in general. If you want to go there, we can go there. Um, and Let's do it. Be happening. Okay. So one of the things that one of the questions that I remember you had there was the distrust in the voting system. Mm-hmm. Well, that sort of distrust in the voting system is on both sides. Both sides have a distrust in the voting system. We we need to sort of be honest about that. Uh, sort of far right side now is it's like well. You can't trust it because they're going. They're they're going to steal the election. Apparently, they only stole the Democrat. The presidential election is going to steal all the Democrats' election. Which yeah, those ones we didn't argue. I mean, there was actually a congressperson. I think you know a congressperson in Georgia who was arguing that the presidential election either should have just been redone, or that the electoral college votes should have just been awarded to Trump. And somebody asked. That's true. Well, what about your election? Oh, no, that's fine. My election is fine. The lack of self-awareness is, is laughable, but also yeah. distressing. Mm-hmm. And so you do have these individuals that are going to say, look, uh, I don't know why this to, to, I should go on and vote. In fact, you had that in Georgia in, in, in December. You saw some of that. Well, I'm not going to go on and vote because it doesn't. they're just going to steal the election anyway, which, again, is my boggling. 
and you're already sort of seeing this Trump base starting to fracture in front of our eyes um, mm-hmm. because he conceded. And now there's, a, I guess, a certain faction that feel betrayed by that in, in, in some way. Uh, of course, there's another faction within that. That's, uh, no, no, he didn't really concede. He's still planning on being president. These are people that could read between the lines if he gave them one line. I mean, it's really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, what are those people? What are those people going to do? So, how do we sort of put back in place that distrust or that trust in the voting system that is, is seem to be lost? I mean, I was talking to a dear friend, very, very dear friend who has no problems acknowledging that Biden won the election. But at the same time, she says, I think there were problems. I don't trust that it was done legitimately, that, that there's systemic problems, in my words, to that election. Like I say, this individual, I believe that Donald, or Donald Trump lost. I believe that Joe Biden won. But I, I have severe distrust in, in the system. On the other hand, if you look at those on the left, there's a certain amount of distress in the, the system as well. Not in the actual voting, but in the registration process, where you have these right. voter purges going on in Ohio and in Georgia. And ACO is doing some wonderful work in this area. But they're, at the same, they're saying the same thing. Look, you're taking our vote away before we can even get to the ballot box. You've told me that I can't do it. And you're doing it in a way that's not legitimate. And so this is not going to be restored anytime soon. This on this issue, I just don't have a lot of hope because what you're going to see going forward is a call, especially from the right, for stricter voter laws, more vote, mm-hmm. more voter ID. And here we cannot, at least I don't think we can deny a racial element to. It. I think you now there's going to be a mm-hmm. lot of people, especially on the right that are going to disagree with me. I think there is a racial element to this mm-hmm. um, by having stricter voter ID laws, even though on paper there's no racial element. But if you look at the, I, I, I looked at this the other day, I just happened to be looking at this, at mm-hmm. voter identification requirements by state. You look at the whole South, the whole South has, uh, requires a photo ID mm-hmm. and then and then the rest of the country is sort of spotty. So um, Michigan re- requires a photo, um, photo ID, but none of the West. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's no coincidence that in the South, you have every state in the South, the every state in the South and, and the border states, if you, if you don't count Virginia and Kentucky as a Southern state, um, right. they require a non-photo ID. Right. So you're going to see a continued pressure on, on this, for stricter voter ID laws. Uh, and the Democrats are going to push back on this and say, look, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to disenfranchise individuals here. This is sort of a, a roundabout way of doing that. And I think that criticism is legitimate. And that's, and that's going to continue to fuel sort of this stress. So the right may say, look, I feel more comfortable with it. But then those on the left are going to raise questions. And so that is going to be the, the background for the next couple of years, at least. And mm-hmm. as I say, I'm just not really hopeful that we're going to get to a point where there is a, a trust when your side loses. As, as you know, my sort of definition of democracy and why I say def- we embrace democracy in the United States or generally people embrace democracy in the United States is the intuitive feeling that when I win, you accept the results. Because when I lose, I'm going to accept the results. How we get back right. to that where we're not running to the courts to sort of overturn a democratic election, I don't know. So that is that that gives that makes me nervous going forward. Right. Because I don't know how we get that trust back into the system. Mm-hmm. Which which that that gets to so uh, that point you just talked about in terms of you know. Demo- democracy we, we <laughs> the whole the, the bedrock is that when, when you lose you you accept it you accept the fact that you lose. so what going here to our, our our next question what what does it mean for our role and um our our place as a country in in the in the global respect what what do you what do you see i mean obviously your <laughs> your expertise aren't 
necessarily in international relations, but I think you 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 know American politics enough, and and um, the the respect the ideas that you know other countries are looking at America, which is supposed to be you know the 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 bedrock of democracy, the 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 um, the shining shining city on a hill, all those all those uh, things that we're supposed to be. Uh, but what do you, what do you think this, the, this shift towards a distrust in our voting system, which is at, a, at the core, you know, our, our democracy, um, what do you think that that means for our, 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 our role in a, in a global respect? Sure. As you know, I, I usually try to stay in my lane and you're right that sort of when we get into sort of global speed, I'm a little bit out of my depth, but there's some thoughts that I do have, have in, in general. Um, one of the things I think to, to remember is that words and, and rhetoric uh, do matter. And, and especially on the global scene, I think words and, and, and rhetoric matter. So when we look at the United States and its image in, on the global scene, one of the things you see the sort of wide sort of shifts once a president comes into power. So under the Bush administration, um, in a number of countries, though not universally so, um, the image of the United States internationally was fairly low. Uh, now, there were some bright spots. For example, many African countries just loved uh, Bush, just absolutely loved Bush uh, because of the health initiative there. Uh, dealing with AIDS and HIV. In fact, Bush, as an aside, uh, the big winner over the last four years, and especially over the last two months, has been George Bush. People on the left like, hey, he wasn't such a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. He, he made a war, statement Iraq, this past weekend. Everyone loved him. Yeah, yeah. They just, we just forget about. Yes. How how quickly the left forgets about <laughs> when when yeah. something worse yeah. comes along. <laughs> right, right. Um, he was loved in Africa because I mean he literally saved through health initiatives millions of lives in in Africa. Um, mm. But more to the point, let's get back to sort of to get back to where we were is America's image. Um, Barack Obama, President Obama comes becomes president, literally overnight, America's image basically skyrockets, skyrockets, mm -hmm. right? It goes immediately up. He's done nothing <laughs> at this point. I'm not, I'm not casting an aspersion. I'm just saying this is a reality. He just became president. He hasn't yeah. done anything. Yes. <laughs> and it, it, the, the numbers go up again. Um, Trump becomes president and the numbers sort of fall off the cliff. Again, he hasn't done anything. Now, we can right. guess what he's going to do or not going to do. I'm not saying, again, that was the legitimate falling of uh, American image, and especially this is just focusing on Western European countries. Uh, because, and the reason we, we would focus on Western European countries is these are the ones that we would think, expect to give us sort of the most break. I mean, they're the ones to be sort of have the closest affinity to the United States. So usually your friends will maybe cut you a bit of slack. Um, more than, right. than others who aren't, aren't your friends, right? That's the only reason I say Western European countries. I would expect yeah. a similar thing to happen with, with, with Biden. So let's get back to where I started because I've sort of wandered off here. <laughs> <laughs> um, rhetoric and words matter. They, they, they really do. And so it's going to be incumbent on President Biden to provide the rhetoric and the words to assure, especially our allies and the rest of the world, that the United States is going to be that shining hill, such giant shining city on a hill, because right now we are a byword. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that sort of the Winthrop sort of caution is if, we're, if we don't live up to this, we're going to be a byword. And that's, that's where we are. We're, we're, we're being criticized in, in ways that are, are legitimate. Um, and so will Biden come on the scene and through sort of day one, reach out to um, the global community and assured them that we're going to be back on track. And I think he will. I think, again, we're going to see overnight those numbers are going to maybe not skyrocket like they did under President Obama, because President Obama had the charisma, President Obama had the stature that Biden in some ways lacks. Biden is, is like your uncle. Right. Uh, we, we love our uncle and we love talking to our uncle at, at Thanksgiving time and Christmas and holidays, but we don't expect too much from him. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> as old, good old Uncle Joe, you know how he look is. at yeah, 
and, and he's always and, there. <laughs> right, right. And Biden doesn't always have the greatest command of the English language in the sense of saying the right thing at the right time. He he can be a mm-hmm. bit of a gaff machine. Uh, mm-hmm. but President Obama was not. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know the answer to the stature of President Obama that people are going to immediately say, oh, you know, everything's back, back on track. But I think he has the capability of doing it. Because when we think about democracy and we think and these two things are tied together and about political or social culture over the next two to four years, here's one aspect where I'm, again, hopeful. So and we can sort of think, I'm hopeful, I'm not hopeful, I'm hopeful, I'm not hopeful. <laughs> uh, one aspect I'm, I'm hopeful is that I really believe that President Biden has, uh, as his goal and what he sees his mission is, for better or worse, is to save America's soul. This is what mm. I believe. He believes that he's, the reason why he's to be president, that America's soul is at risk and that he's going to come in and help to save it. And because I believe that, I think you're going to see a lot different rhetoric, not just because he's a Democrat and not just because he's Joe Biden, but because of what he believes his mission is, what he believes his purpose is as president. Now, this is going to cause him a lot of trouble internally in the party, which is right. probably another conversation. But because of that, the rhetoric and the speech that he gives at inauguration is absolutely crucial. And he knows it. I, I believe he knows it. So he's going to hit themes of reconcil- reconciliation. He's going to hit themes of unity. Now, if he doesn't, then we're in trouble. But I think mm-hmm. he will. And I think that's going to give comfort to our our allies and to other parts of the world as, as well. Now, the, the right is going to kind of lose their collective mind, um, mm-hmm. but they, they're not going to accept anything he says anyway. They've already indicated that. So I, I'm hopeful. Right. So our, our global image is going to, well, it, it will increase because it can't go any lower. There's no way it can go any lower. I guess that's a positive, uh, but not sort of a hopeful thing. But no, I think I think it's going to to bounce back, um, and I think President Biden is going to make that as his goal to sort of repair our image uh, globally. Yeah. Mm. And so before I ask my next question, I want to confirm with you. So it's it's we're coming up on an hour. Do you are you able to uh, continue to talk? Because I have a couple more questions. But if if you you've got to go, I, I can fast forward to the the most important questions. No, I'm fine. Yep, I'm fine. Oh, per- perfect. Go because, yeah, keep going. Yep. Uh, okay, great. Because um, I, so I, I'm gonna ask a question that you you did not have ahead of time because of what you brought up in terms of the way we talk, in terms of the how how President Elect Biden has been talking um, since um, Election Day. And so just recently, I mean, literally just uh, yesterday of, of our recording today, Twitter announced that it was officially suspending our current president's uh, Twitter account uh, because of the insightful um, mm. uh, language uh, that, that uh, President Trump has been, uh, you know, s- saying. Uh, in terms of... Uh, the right and um, some of the commentators, a lot of a lot of what I personally have been seeing is, you know, this is, this is taking away our free speech and taking away uh, uh, his right to to say things. Um, can, can you speak on that? Because I know how how I feel about that. And, you know, Twitter being a private company or, or well, I guess it's a public company, but Twitter being what it is and um, their ability to uh, take down things, but can you can you speak on uh, uh, on their decision to um, suspend his sure. account permanently? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I saw that came across as a, a news item. Um, I subscribed to New York Times and it came across I think last night. And I was like, wow, that, that surprises me, and it, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I guess my first reaction was, well, thank God Twitter didn't do that back in, in 2016. We'd probably be looking at a second uh, Trump administration. <laughs> because, <laughs> but I, in 2016, I was asked to give a sort of post-election crystal ball to a, a local manufacturing mm-hmm. society in, in Finley. And the way I started out was, 
look, the first thing that they should do, the Trump administration do, or Republicans should do, or whoever's in charge of this, they should take away his Twitter account, get him to stop tweeting, because Trump is, is too reactionary. And this is something that, that they need to do. And here's the interesting thing about his Twitter account um, and his, his tweets. There's not been, ever been a single Trump supporter that I've ever talked to in the last four years. When I bring up Twitter and his tweets, they say, yes, I wish you would stop tweeting as well. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> and the, I, I'm talking about diehard Trump supporters. He's got to stop doing this they should take away his twitter account not <laughs> not twitter of course but uh whoever they are i guess uh, yeah. his staff or, or whoever so obviously it's not a it's not about let's get to the easy part this is not a violation of free speech not not by mm -hmm. any stretch of imagination um and holly is out there i'm going to sue because he lost this this book contract I mean, this is a violation of my First Amendment rights, which I think Yale University probably should uh, re revoke his diploma at this point. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think he knows that. I think he knows it's not a violation of the First Amendment. He just wants to play the victim here. Right. Um, so on one hand, I don't have a problem with Twitter doing that. Um, and I don't have a problem with any, any private company. Yes, we have free speech, but we don't have the right to any forum that we want. Uh, Facebook did the same thing with with Trump. Yep. Uh, the thing is, is that, and here's why it's not a problem, especially for somebody like that. He's got plenty of other ways to get his message out, which is going to be interesting mm -hmm. to see what he does uh, do going forward. You know, there's talk about him sort of lining with Newsmax, maybe starting his own media. Uh, that's where what I think he's going to go go with is probably aligned with somebody an existing media company like a Newsmax. And then he's got sort of a platform to speak for the next four years. Whether anybody's going to really be listening to him or not is is is, is another matter. So social media platforms have the ability to moderate their content. Um, they should have the ability to moderate their content. If there's violation of it, uh, then they have the ability. Like Apple just announced. I I'm, I don't know if you saw this. Apple just gave Parler 24 hours to start moderating in his contact or, or they're saying, no, we're, we're uh, basically taking our app off our, our app store. Again, oh, I, did I don't have do a that. problem with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, again, that just came across uh, last night. Or I saw it on a, on my Twitter feed, somebody announced it. So I yeah. private companies can do this. Private companies have to protect their brand. Uh, and so that that's not problematic. And here's why it's, it's not problematic on that way because it's not a constitutional issue. But it's also not, not problematic on another way because all these individuals have other forums that are available to them to get their, their message on. But let's also be clear about this. There's no constitutional protection against inciting people to riot. If you can draw a direct connection between the speech, whether it's written or oral speech, and to people rioting, you've lost constitutional protection. There's constitutional protection for me to say our government's lousy, or there's constitutional protection to criticize our government, um, there's uh, constitutional protection to say whatever I want. But if I'm going to use that platform to literally incite people to take up arms against its own citizenry, you've lost constitutional protection. You just don't have it. Right. Regardless of whether the company's private or whether it's in a government, sort of speech, whatever. So that's what people need to realize is that, yes, you are entitled to your opinion. You're entitled to voice your opinion, but not when you step over constitutional lines. Mm -hmm. right? um, and so, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with what, what, what Twitter is doing. Uh, again, I'm just in some ways kind of thankful that they did drag their feet on it in, in some ways. So we, we, we need to sort of be careful that we don't get too loose with our own language here because we can draw direct connection, though it wasn't on Twitter, uh, between Trump's speech to the individuals the other day and to the mob scene and riot that did take place. I think there's a direct connection there, though people are, are denying that as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that that's going to get to my next question here. Um, 
which um, uh, it, it ties in with a question that you have, but also one that I want to bring up because of something that happened yesterday um, after I had sent you these questions. So the, the question that we have here is, do you think that this could be the emergence of a new political party where the U.S. is no longer dominated by a two-party system? And you've kind of already talked about this. And I think I want to I want to bring this um, to Lisa Murkowski, which I don't know if you saw her um, most recent yeah. Uh, uh, statement, but she basically made a statement saying that if if the Republican Party is the party of of Trump and and what he's been saying, then I, I'm not sure it's the party for me. Now, um, so if you want to answer first the, the 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 first question, and then we can get into the Lisa Murkowski um, item because I think you know she she's from Alaska and she has a lot of name recognition. I don't think she would be a, as poised to um, you know or, or be in necessarily as 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 much of have an issue if if she were to run as an independent or whatnot but um just what are your thoughts to all those items yeah and i, I guess there's talk about trump sort of starting his own own party or or stuff like that again that's just sort of nice rhetoric and sort of nice thing to think about is we could have a third party that would emerge and and people put way too much hope in that um, in the sense that it will happen and then what that party would look like because all of a sudden I was just reading watching a, a sort of a, a video on this or YouTube I think uh, Larry Diamond or uh, Francis Fukuyama made the comment and they've done a lot of work on democracy really really thoughtful stuff that if we did have sort of went to a parliamentary system we'd have sort of these third parties which would give room for a moderate third party to sort of emerge a third party revolving around moderates. I, I think, well, that's really sort of cute and adorable that you think that would happen, but no way in the world. <laughs> it's just, it, it, right. it's not going to happen. Any third party is going to be on the fringes, not in, in the middle. Because mm. how, how do you, how do you mobilize moderates? Hey, yeah. let's be more thoughtful and let's, let's have <laughs> uh, concessions and let's have compromise. That simply <laughs> doesn't resonate with people to motivate them. They're like, oh, well, that's, that's nice. Um, so I don't think any third parties are going to emerge. And if they did, I don't mm -hmm. know that they, it's going to be, wouldn't necessarily be, be a good thing. Um, but again, let's go back to the institutions. Our institutions just don't allow it. The way we have institutions set mm -hmm. up in single member districts, plurality voting, except in a couple of states like Georgia, which has the, the majority uh, voting rule. Um, which again, mitigates against uh, third parties itself. There are just too many institutional um, sort of roadblocks or barriers to overcome. It's just not gonna happen. Best case scenario mm -hmm. is that you would have somebody like Murkowski um, would run as an independent, but then would choose to caucus with one of the, the two parties. And I, I, I sensibly just off the top of my head, I guess you would probably caucus with the, the Democrats. So, right. Here's the thing, she can do that because like you noted yourself, she has the name recognition and it's Alaska. <laughs> How many people vote in Alaska, like five and a moose? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the moose you have to worry about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she can do it and not worry about not, not um, about losing. Others probably mm -hmm. can't, which is why, for example, why Trump uh, and others said Trump was ran as Republican, and you know Rand Paul and 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 others. They will that you choose a party that you're going to be in. Right? Bernie, Bernie mm -hmm. Sanders is a Democrat. Bernie Sanders would probably love to have his own own party, a, a social Democrat party. And a lot of people would probably love to have a social Democrat party. It's just not going to happen because there's so much in to identify with the party. So you may see one or two independence going forward but that's going to be very very short-lived and then everybody sort of comes home i mean the model we can look at is the 1990s right uh -huh. nine, nine, 92 uh ross perot runs as an independent you have this in the, as a true independent gets 19 percent of votes zero electoral college votes uh 1996 he runs again that 19 percent is cut in half uh 2000 you have a reform party that has been established by this point uh, they run a candidate and have sort of a really sort of bizarre platform. Look at it sometimes, really, in some ways, it's quite bizarre. And their vote is down to, I'm going to guess, about 1%, maybe 
yeah, probably 1% or less. I'd have to look up the numbers again. So I'm just going from, from memory. And the reason is, is that sort of the issues that they brought up were then co-opted by the two political parties, where the two political parties had a sort of come to Jesus moment and say, well, we need to sort of start addressing these and, and do this. So that's what's going to happen. I think, yes, yeah. you might have an independent here or there. You're not going to get a third party. And you probably, i got to be honest, I don't know that you want a third party uh, because I think it's going to be more on the fringe. Uh, and it's, it's, which, which simply means that it's going to siphon off votes from one of the, the major parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I don't think it will happen. So you, you get some independents that come along, but they'll caucus with one or the other other parties. And so there can be sort of functional Democrats or functional Republicans, even though they say they're, they're independents. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if I addressed all those questions because that's what I got on <laughs> Oh, no, that that was, I mean, that was perfect. And I think, um, so that's going to be my final question for the interview portion. Um, now, I mm-hmm. do have, um, so I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cap this here and say, so finally, thank, thank you for being our first guest for season two. Um, so we do have two questions that we ask all our guests. Um, so here are those questions, and this these questions were redacted on on the questions that I sent you. So you, you, you unless you've listened to any of our other interviews, you, you're not sure what these are. But our first one is: What is the best advice or piece of advice that you received from a mentor that you feel comfortable with sharing? Wow, best advice. I gotta sort of repeat the question so it gives my myself some time to think about it. <laughs> that's right. Uh, best advice. I, I don't know that I could pick out a, a best advice that I can say specifically comes from from a, a, a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say one of the pieces of advice, and I think this is especially important in the sort of day and age, especially since I just deleted my Facebook account. So maybe this is in my mind. Because there's a part of me right now that feels like, why do I bother talking to other individuals? Because my sense is nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Mm-hmm. That people aren't listening to each other. And so mm-hmm. I, I think my best advice would be don't fall into that trap. I, I remember when I was in seminary, and at that time and during that uh, period, small groups were really, really big. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting down with a mentor, and I, I said, well, I don't always feel comfortable talking. And she looked at me, and she said, Robert, you do not have the right not to talk. You do not have the right not to share insights that you have. You owe it to the group and to others around you to share that information that you believe is valuable and should be heard. So don't withhold that information. Continue to share that information. So my best advice within sort of the political world that we live in is that we can't sort of withdraw upon ourselves and say, look, I think differently, but I'm going to hold that information to myself because you don't want to hear it. We have a responsibility to ourselves and to our community to share the information, to share the insights, and to share our beliefs with others so that it can have an impact. Along with that, we have to make sure that we're doing it in a respectful way, right? So that would be my advice, is that in this day and age where people don't seem to want to talk with each other, don't withdraw upon ourselves. Find a way to continue to share that information and to share the insights that we have. And in some ways, be bold about that, while at the same time being respectful. So that would be the thing that comes to immediately to mind. And I think it's sort of real valuable which is one of the reasons why I was looking forward to this podcast, because I've really struggled with this over the last month, is I I really believe I do have a voice, but if nobody's going to listen to it, should I I share it? And obviously the answer is like, I should, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, before I get into our second question, I just want to say thank you for sharing that. And, and thank you for coming on the podcast. I know I've said that mm. about 20 oh. times now, but I mean, your, your voice is one that I, 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 I don't know if I ever told you this, but um, the first day of, of class when I was a freshman at Finley and I, I, I had your class first, it was, um, 
American politics, and then I f immediately followed up with intro to politics um, at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday. And uh, you you started the class by telling everyone that you were a, uh, a, a conservative Christian, and you felt it was important mm. that we know that uh, as we move forward. Mm. That being said, you are open to... Um, the discussion of class and the discussion of, of working out. And I, I left that class at first feeling a sense of, oh my God, I'm, I'm about to be, <laughs> I'm about to be taught by someone who is the direct um, opposite of all mm. my liberal and ideological beliefs. But then by the end of the semester, after our class discussions, after having that truly healthy discussion and healthy debate with, with the, 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 the the classmates that really made up the entire ideological spectrum um mm -hmm. because sure. i mean th that that was one of the great things about finley and our po the political science department was uh, th there were crazy liberals like me there were um crazy conservatives there were people in the middle there were <laughs> military people there was everything and your class really right. fostered that that healthy um place to have that discussion uh, and yeah, so so I don't know if I told you this, but the, after that first class, I was I was super worried. But then by the end, I was like, oh wow, this this is this is a place, and this is someone who truly um, uh, respects others' opinions and allows for that respectful discussion. So um, just just to just to put a put a pin in that before before I ask the second question, uh, because I, I think it's important. Uh, that you know that, but also um, our listeners know that that's the that's the mm. kind of classroom that that you create and created for yeah. for uh, your students. Well, um, thank you, thank you for sharing that, Rod. Truly, but the scary introduction to the University of Finney, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. I was like, oh god, why did I come here? Why I came here from Columbus, Ohio? Like, why is this this where I decided to go? But it all it all turned out okay. <laughs> Right. How, how can I have kosher shadik and not leave the state? How did that happen? Right. <laughs> how did this? Uh, but it was good for me. Okay. So good. Good. The, I'm glad. I'm glad we're laughing for this. This second question because the second question we ask all our guests, Doctor Postic or Robert, as you've told me to call you now, yeah, is yeah, please. Do you do you believe in ghosts? I, no, but apparently the. Um, individual that drove those the truck of ballots from like new jersey to pennsylvania or whatever that story was apparently he believed in ghosts i don't know if you saw that one of their star witness one of juliana's star witnesses uh, uh, bought a house apparently and was so convinced that it had ghosts in it that he sold the house and moved and this is no. one of the this is why you know Probably the lawsuits didn't get too much traction in the courts when one of your star witnesses uh, is believing in ghosts. The other one appears, looks like should be on Saturday Night Live skit. So that, that was problematic. Yeah. Again, I, uh, I, I, it's really a complicated matter because, uh, interestingly enough, this touches on theology for me. Mm -hmm. right? So most Christians especially evangelical Christians, and again, this is my identity, will say, no, I'll just go give you the pat answer. I don't believe in ghosts. Uh, are there sort of aberrations that we we see? And so what the, the, the pat answer is, is that there is a belief in in demons and afterlife that you know, not only God is real, but there is a, a personality Satan that's real. I don't know why I get too far down this road. Um, <laughs> But I might start losing some listeners now that, oh, I, I love what he said earlier, but the, the man just went off the crazy train here. <laughs> um, and so I think I think a lot of sort of what are termed to be ghosts, I, I say the overwhelming majority of them are sort of natural phenomena that can easily be explained. Right? Mm -hmm. It's just sort of natural phenomena that, that, that happen. But nevertheless, I think there is a supernatural world that at times can sort of break into our, our real world. I believe there is a supernatural world. Mm -hmm. right? Whether those are demons or something else, I'll leave everybody else, especially your listeners, to decide on their own. I'm not telling people what to believe. So generally, I do not believe there are ghosts, but I believe there's a supernatural explanation for some of these, which I think are a, a very, very small minority. The rest of it are just sort of natural phenomena 
that occurred that we may not totally understand or whatever. So generally, I would say no, but I think there are explanations for things that we see. So I think what people <laughs> see is real to them, but I think there's explanations other than saying, oh my goodness, there, there's, there's a ghost. Right. Um, but it was not, not a bad movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, with Whoopi Goldberg and, and I forget who else was, was, was in there. Uh, so, yeah, I believe there's the movie goes, but not, that's not your, uh, real um, apparitions that are out there that are without explanation, I guess is the problem. So I probably lost some of your listeners on that one. it was great that's that's why we asked that question because the responses we get you know they're either really quick yes or no or they're they're long explanations and i i personally like the long explanations more um (laughs) so um i don't think i ever gave a short explanation that's the problem don't worry i'm I'm right there with you so uh, again we want to i want to thank you for talking to me um is there is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners? Yeah, one thing I do sort of want to recap this, and I was talking again with a dear friend who's sort of worried about where we're going as a country, because in her mind we're heading down the road of socialism, and I know you know where I, I stand on that. So your listeners know. Let me just say real quickly: every government action is not socialism, or every government program is not not socialism. And I don't think we're heading towards socialism, but I also don't think we're heading towards the disintegration of our, our country as well, or of democracy. So throughout this, I'd sort of, hey, I'm hopeful, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, for the future, I'm actually hopeful of where the United States is. I think in some ways, one could argue that we've been on a wrong track and, and all of that. But I'm very hopeful for the Biden administration. And for your listeners, let me be clear, I didn't vote for, for um, Joe Biden. Um, and like in 2016, I abstained at the top of the ticket. I couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton, and I certainly couldn't vote for Donald Trump. When I'm looking at the election this this year, I, I certainly, again, couldn't vote for Donald Trump. And for personal reasons, I couldn't vote for, for Joe Biden, for, for whatever reason, but neither here nor there. And the only reason I mention this is that I'm not coming at this from a, a partisan perspective. And your listeners need to know, when I say I'm hopeful for a Biden administration, I'm hopeful for our country and what's going to come out of the Biden administration is not because I'm a partisan and voted for him. So that's mm-hmm. the thing I would encourage your, your listeners to embrace the hope for the future and not get caught up in sort of the, the at times sort of dystopian world that we seem to live in. Embrace that hope mm-hmm. because I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you, Robert. And thank you, Dr. Pasek.